There has been a considerable amount uh, going on in the church in Scotland over the past, um, well, the past years, but over the past week. And I want to reflect on what has been going on because I think these are incredible days in which we live. And uh, I don't particularly want to be um, too negative in the sense of doom and gloom, doom and gloom, because uh, we've almost got past the doom and gloom stage. All the prophecies that were made, I think, have come true. But uh, I want us to see where the opportunities are and just try and explain about what is going on. Now, because of the limited nature of time and the vastness of the subject, I realize that this may not be everyone's cup of tea or explained satisfactory to everyone's cup of tea and uh, to your contentment anyway, and uh, I'm willing, very much willing, uh, if there are particular things here that you've got questions about or you want to talk more about, then please do feel free to talk to me. Um, I want us, we're going to look at the church in Pergamum because I believe it's the letter that most describes best how Christ would speak to the church in Scotland today. Um, just to give you a little bit of background to the two general assemblies that occurred, I'm going to say a little about the Free Church Assembly because this uh, congregation belongs to the Free Church. Uh, I was not at the assembly. I heard snippets of it. I uh, thank the Lord for Facebook because uh, people like Neil DM were Facebooking all the time and it was just great to keep in touch with, in Hungary with how things were going. But reports I've heard from various people since the assembly uh, basically a massive sigh of relief, uh, a sense of unity, and a sense of real purpose. The story is that uh, the Free Church, about three years ago, um, I, I will be honest, because of something that I said at the assembly, uh, began to look at the whole question of worship uh, and sung praise in particular. And that had enormous potential to split the church and to destroy the church and so on. And I'm often extremely critical of uh, my own church, but I have to say in this particular regard, I'm very proud of what the free church has done. And what I mean by that is this. We went back to the Bible and we studied the Bible. And we did not allow the prejudices of people like me who had a particular view or people of other views or um, things that were different things that came in, different fears that were expressed. Uh, on balance, I think that uh, there was a good two-year-long, let's go back to Scripture, let's look at Scripture. And much to uh, our astonishment, I think, in November last year, a full plenary assembly of the church agreed that we would change our position on worship. And uh, it was expected in the past six months that there would be a lot of trouble and that this assembly would be a very fractious and bad one. As it turns out, that was not the case. The decision was reaffirmed and the church has basically been told, now go out and get on with proclaiming the gospel in a Scotland that is desperately needy for it. There are major difficulties and problems within the free church, as you would expect in any church. But... Uh, People said that this could not be done. I'm uh, delighted that it has been done. But that's not what I want to, to focus on. Uh, I think I want to include us, the Free Church in the Church in Scotland, and the Baptists and Charismatics and so on as well. But obviously the major issue this past week 
has been in the Church of Scotland. And it's very difficult in terms of our witness because people perceive the church as being obsessed by what they call the gay issue. Now the problem with that, and I'm not going to go into this in a great deal of detail, the problem with that is it's not the church generally that's obsessed, it's the society that's obsessed. We keep getting asked about it. The story behind the current situation in the Church of Scotland is that, uh, and this has been building for some time, is that at the same time the worship issue was brought up by myself in the Free Church, the issue of uh, homosexuality was brought up in the Church of Scotland by the case of a minister who went from Brecon to Aberdeen and he had been married but he'd separated from his wife and he was living with his homosexual partner. And the presbytery agreed to ordain and induct him uh, despite the fact that the church did not allow that. And it went to the assembly and the assembly agreed to allow the ordination and induction to stand. And then um, two evangelicals spoke and, and basically set up a commission to look at it for two years. And this commission reported uh, to this assembly. Now, if you watch the debate, again, I'm not going to go into it all, but if you watch the debate, uh, people like Andrew Randall, who spoke with passion about the church departing from the truth of God's word. Uh, Andrew has preached here. Lewis Kinsey, uh, what does, he asked, what does the Holy Spirit make of all this? What does God think? And we've just been singing about that in Psalm 2. What does the Lord think? The judges of the earth, the kings of this earth, the fashions of society. The question is, what does the Holy Spirit think? What does the Father, what does the Son, what does the triune God think? Ivor MacDonald from Sky, again, Ivor's been with us. Uh, Ivor stated plainly, we have a Bible which tells us what God thinks. It's as simple as that. It's not that difficult. I think Robin Sidsurf also spoke, and Robin's also spoken here. Um, I think Ivor made it very clear when he said, our problem is not that we do not understand the Bible, it's that we do not want to obey it. And then Martin Allen, who's also worshipped with us here as well, uh, spoke uh, very, very well. And for me, even seeing, quote-unquote, the highlights, it was very moving to see these men in the Church of Scotland making a faithful stand for God's Word. And what I'm about to say is not intended to be a denominational thing. It's I, I support and stand by these men absolutely. And we need to as well, because some of them are going to have very rough times over the next uh, couple of years. Now, on the other side, there are things I heard in the assembly that made me understand what Christ says to the church in Philadelphia when he says of the church that it made him feel sick. And it, this did make me feel. Um, there were some people who spoke, I thought, very well on the other side, and they had questions that we could ask. But statements like, would Jesus have tolerated one of his disciples being gay? And the answer by implication, not just by implication, but specifically stated saying, Jesus would never cast anyone away, was a kind of really false dichotomy. Other statements were made comparing the attitude to homosexuals to the attitude justifying apartheid. We... uh, We're told that we had to recognize that they're in sincerely held views, but we should not think of people as homosexual or heterosexual, but just as people. 
One woman stood up and said, and what I consider to be just extraordinary, that anyone of any intelligence who'd read the Bible and who claimed to be a Christian could say, she said, God has always created gay people. God will continue to create gay people. God has always blessed gay couples in holy partnership. God will always bless gay couples in holy partnership. We were then told that we were to be led by the Spirit. That the Bible, one man stood up and said that the Bible advocated slavery, death for adultery, uh, killing for eating black pudding, and so on, which puts me in a lot of trouble. Um, not for the first two, but the, for, the, for, the, for the third one. Um, and he actually said this. He stood up in the assembly of the church and he said, this is not the word of God. This is not what God says. This is wrong. Science and progress, he said, has given us new knowledge. The Bible is wrong. We must reject the stuff in the Bible because science lets us know better. Now, I understand a non-Christian saying that. I understand an atheist saying that. I, I cannot grasp at all somebody who's a leader in the church saying that. And I, I've, it was just stunning to me to actually hear it. Now, in all these arguments, some of the arguments that you would hear, I am sure that they would resonate with some of you. And you'd feel, oh, no, don't, David, don't, don't go off on a rant about homosexuality. And I'm not. I'm not going to. Because to me, actually, this is not about homosexuality. The questions that were raised were, or the views that were raised, I think they were false dichotomies. For example, the question about people. Can we not just say that there are people, not homosexual people and heterosexual people? Yes, that's true. In the same way as I'd want to say that there are people, and not just people who murder, and people who commit pedophilia, and people who steal, and people who lie, and people who are proud, and people who are arrogant, and people who are real religious hypocrites. But just because you say people are people, it doesn't take away from the sinfulness of any particular action. I think that uh, I, myself, have a great deal of sympathy with the view that society is too much obsessed with sex and sexuality. And also, I'd want to say this, that I'm absolutely convinced that even here tonight there will be people who will struggle with issues of sexuality and sexual sin. Not just homosexuality, but all different kinds. I also have no sympathy at all with Christians who seem to think that homosexuality is the greatest sin, because it certainly is not. That's not what the Bible teaches. And I don't want to go anywhere along that route. But why this is important is not because of the issue of sexuality. Why this is important, it's because of the issue of the Word of God. Now, I think any one of these arguments, uh, for example, I don't think the Bible condones slavery. And although the Mosaic law had a particular penalty for adultery, as it did for other things, just because the penalty no longer applies does not mean that God says, okay, adultery is okay doesn't mean that. The argument that God has created gay people is a highly spurious one. God has created all people. But as there is a genetic component towards our sexuality, so there is also a genetic component very often towards things like our temper or our uh, alcoholism or things like that. But we don't justify them on that basis. I think Romans 1, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Romans 1 from verse 18 onwards describes it beautifully. Verse 28 says this, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. 
They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then especially these words, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I believe that God's word is very clear on human sexuality and sex. It's something that God has given us. It is to be within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. And there are very, very good reasons for that. But we now have a situation where the church in Scotland is perceived by others throughout Europe as leading in a rejection of the word of God. We have moved from being the nation of the people of the book to being the nation of what? We just make it up as we go along. You can stand up in a church meeting and say the Bible is not the word of God. And that to me, that sends a shiver down my spine. I, I don't like being disliked, I don't like upsetting people, and I, I honestly never really want to do that. But upsetting God is just way, way higher on my list of concerns. And to say to the Lord, this is not your word, you got it wrong, or whoever wrote it down got it wrong, is for the church to commit suicide. So I want us to look at, go back, that's the fairly lengthy introduction to I think where we're at. Um, and as I say, it's, I don't think it is primarily about the issue of sexuality. And um, it's also, by the way, not about whether homosexuals can be ministers. In the free church, we've had homosexuals who are ministers. That's not the issue. The issue is um, the question of practicing. And that may sound, well, that's ridiculous. But no, it's not ridiculous. If you're single... In the Christian church, I'm sorry, no matter what our society and culture says, you should not be engaging in sexual activity. Oh, but that's not the way that God made me. You can't use that argument. It doesn't wash. It's not really about sexuality. The issue is about, are we going to follow God's word or are we not? Are we going to pick and choose? Now, Jesus, unlike some of the people who were speaking at the assembly who seemed to think that the love of Jesus means that he would accept anything almost. That's not the Jesus we find in these passages. In chapter 1 and verse 16, for example, in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw at him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And chapter 2 and verse 16 says this. Repent therefore, otherwise I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That sword is, I don't believe it is the physical sword. I think it is the sword of God's word. And when Christ comes in power by his Holy Spirit, we are convicted of our sin and of our need of him. But this situation that existed in this place called Pergamum, let me explain what it was and you'll see the similarities. There were three cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, in that area of Turkey known as Asia Minor. They fought amongst themselves as to which was to be the first city, a bit like Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Dundee 
although Glasgow and Edinburgh don't even think of Dundee as anywhere there, and that's why we're streets ahead. Uh, but it's a bit like them. Pergamon was the provincial capital of Asia, was about 55 miles northeast of Smyrna. It had this amazing, it was famous for this amazing library, which had about 200,000 volumes. There was a huge hill that rose to 1,000 feet above sea level and which had many temples. And in those temples, one, one, one of the most famous was the temple of Alscalopus, the god of healing, closely associated with the snake. In fact, Pergamum was a bit like Lourdes today. People would travel for miles around to go to that place. There was a huge altar of Zeus, and most importantly, Pergamum had the first temple in the area dedicated to Augustus and Rome. And it thus became the center of worship for uh, the emperor in the province. Now that created an enormous problem for the Christians. Because they didn't go to the temple of Zeus. That was okay because Zeus wasn't there. They didn't go to uh, the temple of Ascepolis, the snake healer. That was fine because she wasn't going to turn up either. But they refused to go to the temple of the emperor in a province that was governed by the Romans and who used the emperor cult as a means to control people, they were in trouble. The titles of Lord, Savior, and God were applied to the emperor. And the Christians would call no one Lord except Jesus Christ. In verse 13 then, you can understand this, where their city is described as the place where Satan lives, where Satan has his throne. These Christians were called to live and work where the whole fabric of life was firmly opposed to godliness, where they marveled that people could be so adamantly hostile to a gospel that was fundamentally a gospel of peace and good news. And the only explanation was that Satan was enthroned there, and men in their various capacities are under his power. We don't like the idea of Satan, and lots of people don't believe in Satan and have lots of questions and, and so on, but I do believe in Satan, and I believe that there are spiritual powers that, um, in the words of uh, Mr. Robert Zimmerman, whose 70th birthday is, I think, tomorrow, uh, you've got to serve somebody. Robert Zimmerman, by the way, for you uncultured people, is Mr. Bob Dylan. And for those of you who are uncultured enough not to like Bob Dylan, you need to repent and speak to me afterwards. But he's got a song which says, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. And I think when our rulers turn away from, whether it's in church or in state, turn away from the word of God, it's not that they're suddenly inventing something new. They are placing themselves under another power, a much, much darker power. We like to be a little bit racist in the West about Africans. We say we're not, but we are. And especially our more liberal, enlightened people, they look at the African church and they take it as its most extreme levels and they, 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 they look down their nose at the African church. Well, I want to say this. I think that there are many things wrong in the African church, but there are many things that are right. And one of them is an awareness of the, the forces of darkness. That can be misunderstood. That can be misapplied. And you need to bring the word of God into that. But 
we need to be aware of it. In this city, in Pergamum, a persecution had taken place where a leader of the church called Antipas had been executed. This is the first occasion of the word witness being used for somebody who'd been killed for their Christian faith. We like the term witness. The Greek word martyrius is to be a martyr. We don't think of witness in that sense. Christianity is a strange religion, really. In Islam, it's okay to kill for your faith, and Christianity is not. In Christianity, you have to be prepared to witness, which means that you're prepared to die for your faith. And that's why Jesus is telling the church here, listen, I know you're scared. I know what's happened. I want to remind you that I have a far more powerful sword than the sword of the Roman Empire. It was tough being a Christian in Pergamum. Now, in Scotland, you and I are not going to be killed for our faith. But it's tough being a Christian in Scotland. Unless you go along with the rules. And you know what the rules are? The rules are, you can be a Christian if you want, just keep it quiet. You can be a Christian if you want, just don't let it interfere with anything. You can be a Christian if you want, but don't dare challenge the status quo. You can be a Christian in the same way as you can belong, yes, you can be a Trekkie. You can join the Star Trek club, that's fine. You can be a Christian in the same way as, as um, you join the golf club. But what you cannot be is a Christian in the sense that the Bible understands it and a Christian in the sense that our society has understood it for many years, where your Christianity influences every area of your life. So if you're a doctor, don't you dare offer to pray with any of your patients. And if you're working in a university, don't you dare express an opinion which is contrary to that of the establishment on the issue of human sexuality. And if you're in business, you be careful what you say. I uh, was down in London, and we're going back again uh, in the not-too-distant future, and it was astonishing to hear of groups of Christian businessmen who meet together basically in secret because they are scared that their careers will be finished if they announce their faith. They even have an expression for it, coming out, which is really bizarre. I've come out as a Christian. It's not that... There's a lot of people who are indifferent, and there's a lot of people who are quite happy about Christianity, but there's just been a a kind of creeping attitude which says, this is not allowed. And I think it's going to get tougher being a Christian in Scotland. I have to say the decision of the Church of Scotland Assembly uh, this week is going to make life a lot tougher for some of us because within a, a couple of months, there will be a bill going through the Scottish Parliament now and the proponents of this bill will say, but the church supports it redefining marriage so that it includes gay partnerships. The problem with that is, once marriage is redefined in that way, then if somebody like myself says, well, I don't accept that, to me marriage is between one man and one woman, then uh, I'll be in breach of human rights law by not offering equal services to everybody. And then we're in trouble, or at least some of us are in trouble. That's just, I think, just a small indication of where we are going. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus has praised the church for being faithful to him. 
You're living in a difficult situation. And I think the Lord looks and, and, and looks upon us as his people and says, you're in a tough situation. This is no longer Christian Scotland. But then he has a few things against the church. Verse 14. The church was able to resist Satan in the form of the emperor. But the church could not prevent an insidious heresy within its own ranks. Satan was instilling his poison into the church. Satan not only persecutes, he seduces. In particular, he wishes to reduce the distinctiveness and separation between the church and the world. I actually belong to a Church of Scotland committee, which I'm very thankful to belong to, and there's some really great people on it. It's called Why Believe? It's very difficult to say why believe if your church says, well, don't believe the Bible because it's not the word of God. What to believe then? Why believe? Why bother with religion? Why bother with Christianity? There's so many different religions. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now, what had happened in Pergamon was that teaching had come into the church, the teaching of Balaam. It was a teaching which was associated with the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, Nicolas means he overcomes the people. Balaam means he has consumed the people. And if you look back at the story of Balaam and you taught Balak to entice and so on, it was tied up with sexual immorality and false worship. In Pergamum, as elsewhere, teachers had entered the church and they'd sought to persuade the members to act freely on the acknowledged truth that Christians were not under the Mosaic law. You're not under the Mosaic law. You don't eat black pudding. You can eat black pudding, actually. You're not under the Mosaic law. You don't stone people for adultery. And you're not under the Mosaic law. And body and soul are completely different. And Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves everybody. And if you want to sleep around, that's actually a good thing to do. And that's how they, they, they taught it. There was a group in the church that said there's nothing wrong with being friendly to Rome. What harm is there putting a pinch of incense on the altar and affirming loyalty to Caesar? Why not just compromise with that? Why, not make, a, why make a great fuss about it? <laughs> and Antipas had said no. And then these leaders said, you're a bit extreme, aren't you? Think what a witness you could be. What an influence you could be if you just go along with it and show people how much you love them. And Antipas said, I'll show them how much I love Jesus Christ and I'll show them how much I love them because I'm not prepared to compromise my witness to Jesus Christ. The concept of a permissive society is clearly not new. Neither are its evils. The world says to us this, why bother with a holy life? Don't change the pressure, those of you who are students, the pressure that is on you to conform to the standards of the society around you because you don't want to be seen as odd and weird and different in a bad way. You don't want to be mocked. Because we know that there are religious nutters. We know that there are people who are legalists. We know that there are weird people. And we don't want to be them. We're told to be like everybody else. But the Bible tells us, 1 Peter 1.15, Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I don't believe that we need a list of rules and regulations for the church. I think we need this rule. Be holy as Jesus is holy. 
And if you perceive that what you are doing is holy in that sense, there's not a problem with it. But we need to know what holiness is and we need to know who Christ is. And so the Lord here calls for the church to to repent or he'll come in judgment. Unlike Ephesus, the church had allowed this evil to go on unchecked. It allowed people to stand up in its assemblies and say the Bible is not the word of God. It allowed people to stand up and deliberately and absolutely mock and confront the teaching of God's word about human beings and human sexuality and marriage. And God says, you better repent of this or I will come against you with weapons that are very different from the weapons of this world. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians six seventeen. The Word needs to be applied. Andrew Randall was spot on. I thought it was very courageous of him to stand up and to say, we mustn't depart from the truth of God's Word. We must face up to the truth of God's Word. We must repent when God's Word shows us that we are wrong. But you see, what people prefer to do is this. They prefer to take this book, the Bible, and say, I don't like this, I don't like that. And then they'll justify it by saying, well, science says this and science says that, when science doesn't say anything of the sort, but that doesn't seem to bother them. And they'll also say, the Holy Spirit is leading us, which is some of the most meaningless waffle you will ever hear from anybody. And it's also very close to blasphemy. In fact, I think it is blasphemy. The Holy Spirit is leading you to go against the word that the Holy Spirit inspired. I think it's an incredible thing for people to claim the Holy Spirit is leading. Evangelical Christians will often, you hear people stand up in a church and say, the Spirit told me this and the Spirit told me that. And I want to go, be cautious, be careful. I'm not saying that God can't, but please be careful. On the liberal side, there are people who just throw away the Bible and then take what their feelings are and usually is feelings, or their society is, or their culture is, and say, this is what the Spirit is saying to us. But Jeremiah put it perfectly. If they don't speak according to the Word of God, whether they're claimed to be evangelicals or whether they're liberals, then you don't listen to them. And in Scotland, we need to repent of not hearing the Word of God. Even, well, maybe especially those of us who claim to be evangelicals, we, we, we've become so obsessed with our own correctness. We've become so obsessed with our own positions and our own feelings. We've been so infiltrated by the culture around that we can't even recognize that sometimes we are not listening to God's word. I confess that about myself as, as much as anybody else. There's a real necessity for repentance. Why does the church so neglect the word? The situation in Scotland today is surely that there is a famine of hearing the words of the Lord and that needs to be sorted. I actually think the church going and arguing about homosexuality is a waste of time because we're arguing from different premises. What we need to get back to is to asking simply the basic questions Who is God? How do we know who God is? How do we know what God says? And then we stick with his word, whatever the case. When God's word doesn't tell us something, we cannot be dogmatic about it. When God's word does tell us something, we've understood it, we've applied it, 
this is the living and enduring word of God, it's not a dead textbook, then we live by it. And we're like Martin Luther and we say, here we stand, we can do no other. So, we're in a position where we need to repent. And I, I mean this for the whole church, I mean this for the free church. Um, the free church, at times, we can be incredibly arrogant and proud, thinking of ourselves as the last stronghold of the pure gospel. I'm very, very grateful for the, the way that the church handled our, our particular uh, issues at, at this assembly, but we still have an awful lot to repent of. And I'm not, like, pointing my finger and saying they do or even you do. I'm saying we do. Martin Luther had it absolutely spot on. The Christian life is one of continual repentance. Now, that's not a depressing message. And let me tell you why it's not a depressing message. It's in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus believes in the Holy Spirit, and Jesus believes that the Holy Spirit still speaks to the church. And this is what he says. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Okay, what's that? It's a twofold promise. The manna, first of all, the hidden manna. Now here, the idea is from the book of Exodus. And it's referring to a second Exodus. The, as Moses led the people out of Israel, as, uh, out of Egypt, as you know, they didn't have food. How could food be provided in the wilderness? And the Lord sent them manna. The word manna just means what is it? Because they looked at it and said, what's that? Um, as though they were a child at a meal. I've never had this before. This is not fish fingers. Um, as far as the Israelites were concerned, they were going, this is not cucumbers. This is not the tomatoes that we had back in Egypt. What's this? And so it was called manna. And it fed God's people in the wilderness. Now, we are being promised that Christ the Redeemer, in the exodus of bringing his people out of despair and darkness, will give us this manna. This hidden manna. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, says John, 1 John 3, 2. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What is the hidden manna? In the situation that we face, what do we need to sustain us? When you go to work tomorrow, what do you need to sustain you? When you read some of the junk that's written in religious magazines, what do you need to sustain you? When you're confused by differing opinions piling from everywhere and you're going, my head hurts and my heart is pounding and I, I just can't work all this out, what do you need that will keep you going? More than anything, you need the Word of God. The hidden manna is undoubtedly the secret bread of the Word of God which sustains the afflicted servants of God in their day of trouble until their enemies marvel at their steadfastness and strength. How did these men, these unlearned men, when the, uh, the Sanhedrin asked, when Peter and John appeared before them, how, did, how, did, how were they able to do this? They were sustained by the Word of God. They said about Jesus... How did he get such learning without having gone in, in, to their schools and to their universities? When Christ was in the desert, what happened? After he was tempted, the devil left him and angels came and attended him. The believers in Pergamon are told, don't fill your souls, don't feed your minds, and don't pollute your bodies with the things that are opposed to Christ. 
but instead feast on God's holy food, the bread of life found in Jesus Christ through the word. Jesus said this to to his disciples, John 6, 32. I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. We're going to take communion in a moment and we talk about feeding on Christ. When we hear God's word, we talk about feeding on Christ. When we pray, we talk about being in Christ and being united to Christ. And that's the manner that we have. We can stand up against anyone and against anything as long as we are fed by Christ. And that's what we have to look for. The reason you backslide, the reason I backslide, is not because we fall into some gross sin. We usually fall into some gross sin after we backslide. If you look at Romans 1, Romans 1 doesn't tell us that people are punished, for example, because of homosexuality. Romans 1 tells us that the homosexuality is the punishment. It is the punishment. It's when people turn away from God. God says, okay, do what you want. It's all yours. You take over. You, it's up to you, your desires. But that leads to devastation when God doesn't guide us, when God doesn't help us, when God doesn't feed us. What we have is we are fed by Christ. We If you rely on the tradition of the church, if you rely on your previous experiences, even if you rely on your fellow Christians, all of these things which may be good and often are good and helpful, they won't be enough to sustain you in the day of trouble. But when you feed on the word of God, when you feed on Christ, and it's not this vague, well, the Holy Spirit is saying to us. It's very precise. It's very direct. It's very clear. And you know when it's happening. You know when God is speaking to you through his word. And it is one of the saddest and most tragic blasphemies that in pulpits throughout the land, people are standing up and they are feeding the Lord's people what is not even as good as junk food. It's actually poison. It's killing and destroying. And that's why we need to look and just grasp what this this manna is and be fed and be sustained by Christ. And that's why if you're a Christian and you feel a bit battered just now and you're feeling that it's a bit overwhelming, just lift your eyes a bit beyond your own immediate circumstances or the circumstances you read about in the paper and realize that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. That heaven and earth will pass away, says Jesus, but my words will never pass away. So hold on to the words of Jesus Christ. And you then won't react in fear, and you won't react in anger, and you won't react in bitterness, as though the floods of all that the world throws at us are somehow going to overwhelm us. No, they are not. Because there's also the promise of the white stone. And I love this image. The white stone had a variety of uses and meanings in ancient society. If you were on trial, the jurors would give you a stone. black one meant you were guilty. A white one meant you were free. Another custom was when you wanted to seal a friendship, a stone would be broken in two, and each person would retain a half. And what that would mean is you would have access to each other's home. So if you and I were going to be real friends, what we'd do is we'd get a stone, we'd smash it, I'd give you half, I'd keep the other half, 
And any time we went to visit, it's a bit like first footing, uh, except you could do it any time. You just say, got my stone, and they'd have to let you in. So this could be a new exercise in Christian hospitality. Who are you going to give your stone to, um, and will they come, and will they share it? A stone was also often used for admission to a feast. It was your ticket. And I think here, that's probably the indication that's meant. It could be that it's the stone that Jesus says you're innocent. You're going to take communion, you feel dirty, you feel guilty, and Jesus says you're innocent. No matter who you are, if you believe and trust in me, whatever your sexuality, whatever your background, whatever, if you believe and trust in me, if you repent of your sin, you committed yourself to me, you're innocent. And the white stone is given. It could be symbolizing the friendship, the, the access that we have to Christ. But I suspect in the context, it's probably, this is the white stone that lets you into the heavenly party. The new name is the Christian's own individual name. Our individuality is not taken away when we become like Christ. That name, with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it, let me just say a little bit more about that because there are two possibilities actually with it. If it is, as I've indicated, the Christian's name, then the promise indicates um, a new distinctive relationship in the new life of the kingdom of God. You are never so free and you are never so individual and you are never so human as when you come into relationship with Jesus because it's not that you're swamped and swallowed up into this kind of nirvana type you know spiritual mass it's you are set free to be truly whom God has created you to be and that's why going back to the homosexual issue actually the important thing is not that people identify themselves by their sexuality we should identify ourselves by our identity in Christ that's the primary thing that we should be concerned about if it's the name of God that's, or of Christ that's written on there, then it d denotes a, a new and hidden relationship with the Lord. The white stone means that each individual believer may enjoy a relationship with the Lord which is unique and which therefore sets an inestimable value on each soul in God's sight. I think there are many other things you can say about the white stone. It stands for durability and imperishability. White represents beauty and holiness and glory. And the new name speaks of the character and citizenship which belong uniquely to the servants of God. When all the world's bright lights are beginning to fade for the very last time, all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ will be coming into their heavenly and unfading inheritance. You know, it was, it was really interesting being in Hungary. I, I, it seemed bizarre to me, but when I went out on the streets, or maybe just where we were, it seemed to me that every young man was a bodybuilder and every woman was a model. That's what it looked like. Anyway, um, not that I was looking, but I just observed. But uh, there was a, I, just, I was listening to an interesting podcast whilst I was rather strangely thinking that. And um, there was a man who was talking about how you Botox people and how you do different things. Bottom line is, it all fades, it all goes away. And that's true for us who are believers, except this. What fades and goes away for us is the persecution and the struggle 
and the fight and so on. My race is done. It's finished. That's what Paul says. The Christian looks forward to having a heavenly and unfading inheritance. Solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. How do we stand in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? Not by lamenting, oh no, Scotland's going down the tubes and this is just terrible what's happened and so on. I think what we should be doing is, yes, we should, we should weep over the state of our nation, not because of fear of persecution for ourselves, but because the people who will suffer in this more than anything else are the poor and the defenseless and those who cannot speak up for themselves. The unborn, the weak. And that should cause us to weep. And it should cause us to weep over the lostness of people. But for ourselves, we should have a real confidence because of what Christ has done for us. C.H. Spurgeon was asked about defending the Bible, and he said this, defend the Bible? Why? I would as soon defend a lion. It's dumb. We don't, even, we don't need to defend the Bible. What we need to do is to live it, believe it, proclaim it, and, and pray that people would see Jesus. We are going, as I say, to take communion in a moment. I just want to, to finish with this. In Romans 8... There's an argument, as there always is in the church. There's a discussion going on in Romans about Jews and Gentiles and different parts of the church and what salvation is and so on. How we cope with persecution. Verse 31, Romans 8 says this, What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Maybe read the rest of it later, but just think about that just now. If God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? I'm not afraid of what's going on in Scotland. I'm not afraid because the gospel is still true, because every single word of the word of God is still true. I was interviewed by someone from the media who was looking to see if I'd be suitable material to be on one of their programs. And it was uh, kind of testing me out. And I asked him, I said, you are testing me out, aren't you? He said, yes, I want to see if you're some kind of fundamentalist. I said, well, I've got a real shock for you. I believe every word of the Bible. And he says, yes, but you don't sound like it. Now, <laughs> I have no idea what that means. But I said, I do. I believe every word of the Bible. I believe that it is God's revelation to us and I believe it's what Scotland needs to hear and I'll never ever compromise that. So we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. But I think all of us should have that confidence that God's word is truth. That we, we would be equally as horrified when someone stands up and says, nah, it's not. that's not God's word. Yes, it is. And it's the word about Jesus Christ. And that's how... No matter what your circumstances, if you believe and trust in Jesus tonight, then when we take communion, you're feeding on Christ, you're remembering what Christ has done, 
and because of what he has done for you, no matter the most horrendous of circumstances that you are facing or that you may face, you are safe. And glory goes with you. And beauty goes with you. And eye has not seen. And ear has not heard. And mind has not conceived the things that God has prepared for you who love him. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.